Well, we come to the end of Second Peter, and I was sharing with my wife that ending a series is always a very difficult time for me. Um, it's kind of like spending a year or two with a very good friend that you really enjoy their company and then having to part ways <laughs> because not that you can't ever call them or reference them or visit with them, but you're no longer, you know you're not going to be having daily contact with them necessarily. And that's really how it feels. Um, by the time you get to the end of a sermon series in a book that has traversed months and months, you get a comfort level with that author, um, with his writing, and you've read the book over and over again, and it's almost like you know Peter personally, uh, which we somewhat do. He's really writing from his heart. And so it's always difficult to come to an end of a study, and that doesn't really matter what study it is, really. Uh, a little less so with topical studies. Topical studies don't have that effect on me because you're all over the place, and frankly, I'm always kind of relieved to get done with a topical study um, because it's a extraordinarily a lot more work than verse by verse. And... Um, Whereas here I can settle in and enjoy uh, the Petrine epistles and, and develop it. And it just builds on itself. And so the farther along you get, the, you're really building a structure on top of a foundation rather than trying to lay more foundation stones over and over and over again. <clears throat> so today we're going to wrap this up. And we have a very appropriate phrase at the end of Second Peter to help us and direct us in that. And his phrase is very specific it's the last half of verse 18 it says to him that is to our lord and savior jesus christ to him be the glory both now and forever amen and so we have the totality of peter's writings really before us as an opportunity to consider that peter's concern for the church and that's who he's writing to describing them as the dispersed ones um, who are Christ's holy nation, his peculiar people, writing to them and saying that all of this, Peter's entire intent, both the warning passages, the instructional passages, um, the uh, uh, directives, the commands that we have here, are all to enable the church to better glorify her Savior. And when we come to this word glorify, we need to recognize that this is really the purpose of man. From his creation, far before there was sin, our purpose was to bring glory to our Creator. God did not create us because he was lonely. He did not need fellowship with us. He did not need to have a reason to exercise his power. Um, he simply chose to do that. He had no need. He had fellowship within himself. There was nothing inherently in God that necessitated him creating this world or a man upon this world. It is very evident from some of the terminology used in Genesis 1, that he wasn't just creating it haphazardly, but he had man as the uh, objective of all the balance of the 
pre-creative activity before us. And so we, we come to realize that God had a desire to create man in his image. Uh, and did God have glory prior to that? Yes. But what he was creating was an opportunity for that glory to be shared. And that is by bringing glory to God, we share in his glory. And that is a phenomenal thing we don't often consider, is that really to, to, <laughs> uh, to bring glory to someone is really uh, just an adoration, a, a uh, honoring of that which is possessed by that other. In other words, by my bringing glory to God does not increase or decrease what he inherently has within him of his own glory. And thus the Bible talks about the glory that is due his name. Why is it due to God? Well, it is owed to him because it is his possession. We are his work, the work of his hands. We are that which has been created. He is the creator, and so it is owed to him by we who have our very existence uh, subject to his will, that he wanted to create man, and to create him in such a manner that he could share in some of the very essence of what God is. And thus we are the crowning act of his creative work. And so as the crowning act of his creating work, we have that greater responsibility and a greater opportunity to bring God glory, more than the animal kingdom, more than the birds and the fish, more than the plants, more than the dirt, more than the sun, moon, and stars. We have the greater capacity to bring glory to God, for he has invested in us of his very self. Not that we have little sparks of divinity in us, that if you think that's what I mean, you don't know me very well, right? Uh, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but rather that we have his image. We are image bearers. And so we have capacities and that are uh, overwhelming sometimes to us and certainly overwhelming to the rest of creation. And that's why God says, subdue the rest of creation. You have authority over them. And I grant it to you. I've made you with that authority. And we marvel at that. But we don't marvel at ourselves. We bring glory to the one who granted it to us. We can strut around like we are important, but we hopefully, in our humility after last week's message on how to grow in grace, recognize that if I uh, receive this from God, then God is that much higher greater than me, and he is to be glorified in the exercise of my image-bearing qualities and the uh, attributes that God has shared with us. And it is not to my uh, glory, but to his. And so for Peter to state this is really to state the whole purpose of man, is to glor bring glory to God. Uh, and so that is our objective, the objective for the Christian, because we are informed on who our Creator is, and we have even further opportunity because He has not only done the creative work in us, 
but he has done a recreative work in us, that we are new creatures. And now as new creatures who have been given, not just uh, created in his image, but now brought into a relationship with him as sons of God, we have even further reason and further capacity, that's a really technical term, to give, bring God more glory. And we can squander that, and that's what Peter's afraid of, that we'll squander that privilege and not do that. And that is what the case that he is making throughout the books of 1st and 2nd Peter to prevent the church from being drug into a series of thinking that is self-exalting, that it, which is the problem that Lucifer had, and we can join him in that. Uh, that is um, uh, doing a detriment to God and to his uh, claim on us as creator and to his further claim on us as savior. So for Peter to tell us that we are that this is all with one singular purpose to bring glory to him. Now, and that's exciting, and forever. Yes, one day we will be able to be in his glory and glorify him in his presence. And we look forward with great anticipation to that. Um, and sometimes we kind of think, well, I'm kind of just wasting my time till I get there. Uh, and you miss the word now then in this verse. You are to bring glory to him now and forever. That this is the whole purpose of man in his entire existence, both as a child into your adulthood into your middle age, past your middle age, into your declining years, and even as your last breath on earth is taken, you have this expectation of God that you'll bring him glory. This should be the desire of our hearts in all things. Am I bringing God glory? in my speech, in my attitude, in my very countenance, in my relationships, in my work activities? Am I doing this for God's glory? And I, that is the ultimate evaluation of everything it means to be human and a, certainly of everything it means to be Christian. And so this becomes a very powerful summary of Peter's writing. And so we saw the mega themes throughout the book that direct us in some of the key important areas where we need to glorify God in and be attentive to them, uh, not the, in the exclusion of other things, but that when we get these factors in right order and we get them directed towards God, they often carry with them the other factors around them that might seem less important, but again, as we just shared, everything I am is to be called upon to bring glory to God. And so Peter has given us some excellent instruction. It is brief, 
and we have expanded upon it by looking at other passages. Um, he is a very concise, direct speaker, which you would expect as a fisherman. Um, he's, he's, he's not a big spokesperson. He didn't uh, exercise that. He was not an extensive preacher. Um, if you read through Acts, you don't get the impression that, that he just loves to stand up and preach for an hour. Um, read Acts 2 and see how long it takes you to read his sermon. It uh, doesn't take much. It's not all he said, but uh, substantially it was. And when we compared to like even Stephen, uh, Stephen was a much more eloquent than Peter. We come back later in Acts, we don't see Peter taking the leadership of the Jerusalem council. Rather, we see that falling upon the half-brother of Jesus, his name's James. And so um, his leadership was very different. It was a servant leader. And we would expect this kind of conciseness. And we saw, as we went through First and Second Peter, how much of it was directly drawn from what Jesus taught him. That what Jesus taught him, he wanted to make sure to teach others. Remember that over and over again throughout First and Second Peter, says, I know you know this. But my job is to remind you. And we need those. We need that reminder. That's why we gather weekly, is to get a reminder. We're not, getting, we're not here to get um, rejuvenated so I can live the Christian life this week. Uh, this, the, I need to be juiced up and have an emotional event to, to be something that I, I you know, kind of run out of gas later in the week. No, that's not what we're here for. We're here to be reminded, uh, hopefully to grow in our knowledge of God, to be instructed, uh, often rebuked, corrected, that we might walk better this week than we did last, better informed, and, and meditate upon those truths to a more effectual manner. That we're elevating our game by training our minds and training our hearts training even our bodies to be subject to the law of God, to the word of God, to the grace of God. And that is epitomized by this phrase, to bring God glory. And so let's vis revisit some of those mega themes that you may have forgotten. <laughs> it's been months, I realize that. Has it been over a year? Does anybody remember when I started 1 Peter 1? Some of you take notes or going back and saying, how long has he been here? Oh, I don't have that. He's on my third notebook or something. I don't know. We have visited and revisited him because Peter writes very differently. And so he is kind of, for, uh, it's kind of scattered. He visits, goes to something else, goes to something else, comes back to something, uh, which allows us to have that repetitive nature of instruction. One of the major themes, of course, that we have visited in Peter is the idea that what brings glory to God in the believer's life is that we endure. That we're going to endure to the end. Not just for our own sake that we might be saved, but to recognize that I endure this world and I endure um, the world, the flesh, and the devil that I want to complete my course, as Paul says, that I want to endure suffering, that I want to endure opposition, I want to endure even false teachers, we're going to talk about that as one of the mega themes here shortly, that I'm going to last through this life for God's glory. 
Again, boil it down, boil it down, boil it down, so that, so that, so that. Ultimately, so that I can glorify God. We recognize that those who walk away from the faith have failed fundamentally in multiple areas of their life because, in the end, they are not bringing glory to God. It does not glorify God for us to abandon our pursuit of Him. For whatever reason. Oh, it's just too hard, Pastor. Oh, it's just been difficult. Um, Frankly, you're soft. When I look through history and see what people have endured to get you a copy of the Scriptures, what people have endured to share the gospel with people that they have never met in foreign lands and in very remote places, what they have endured to enable that to happen so that tribal people could hear the name Jesus and trust in him, uh, they have endured even to the point of death itself. And we complain. Oh, it's too hard. It's too hard. We have our excuses and we rationalize them. And ultimately, every rationalization for not enduring is destroyed when we understand that the fundamental purpose of man, whether saved or unsaved, is to bring glory to God. And this is the final and most important reason we endure. Because it is what I was designed for. Mankind, I wasn't created, I was begotten. Only two people were created, and so I'm always careful not to use that, I was created for this. Mankind was designed by our creator to bring him glory. And when I evaluate myself, and I look upon it, and I say, well, will it bring God glory for me to follow him for three years, and then abandon him for the balance of my days? To follow him for... 15 years, to follow him until I'm 21 and now I can get out from underneath my parents and then abandon him. Will that bring him glory? Will that fulfill my purpose for which God has designed me? Now we hear a lot of creationists and a lot of philosophers talk about there is a a God-sized hole inside of people that can only be filled by God. Uh, And that's a very selfish perspective, frankly, that somehow I'm only bringing God in my life to meet my needs so that I can sense fulfillment. It's really a very vacuous way of stating that we are designed for Him. Not that we are designed needing Him in our life. That may be true, It certainly is true. We need him in our life. But ultimately, we have been designed to fellowship with him. That fellowship is predicated on the idea that we are the creatures bringing glory to our creator. So I endure. Endure it. Endure it when men hate you because they hated the Lord. Endure it when they speak ill of you, uh, for they have done so to the Lord, when they even despitefully use you and slaughter you. Endure this. Why? Because this is how you're going to bring glory to the Lord. And, and um, regardless of how people react to your endurance, 
ultimately they will recognize that you brought glory to the Lord. It might not be until the judgment seat. It might be the great white throne before they say, oh, you know, I saw that person and they were weird and they tried to tell me about their relationship with you because they're not talking to you or me, they're talking to their creator. And I kind of blew it off as just they're freaks. And at that point, they will be, it is then that your endurance will glorify God even in their judgment. So you did have access, faithful witness that condemns you this hour because you didn't respond. I say, Pastor, that's kind of a backhand approach to bring glory to God. Uh, no, it's, uh, it, it is by sheer numbers, it is the majority approach. Because narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. And so for the majority of the times, us enduring is the rarity, and thus bringing glory to God is going to be uh, exemplified most at the great white throne. In terms of quantity, not necessarily quality, but certainly in quantity. And so we are called to endure. And this he has ex- ex- called us upon and instructed us in. And, and it, there's two themes underneath that. And that is what we, when we consider what we have been saved from, that should cause us to endure. Look what I've been saved from. How can I be so ungrateful not to be a faithful servant of a master who has done so much for me, paid such a dear price, and delivered me from such uh, horrible conditions that was my experience prior to being a believer? Now, I came to know Christ as a very young age. You say, how horrible could your experience be? You were raised in a Christian home, and you accepted Christ as a pretty young age, so how horrible was it? Um, I was a sinner, and I knew it. I had rebellion in my heart toward any authority around me, including my parents, maybe particularly my parents. And that leads to destruction. And by God's grace and mercy, uh, at a young age, I had to encounter the powerful working of God on my behalf. And too many times we don't communicate the necessity to our children of just what a horrible life they will have and could have without Christ. And that's why so many children raised in church, went to Sunday school, then get out in their world and they drawn into the world because we haven't trained them to be thankful for what Christ has done for them. And without a thankful heart and a humble heart, they will not endure. They will think somehow that, you know, God should just appreciate that I went to Sunday school when I was a kid as though that is the conclusion of that, and they have paid a price. They have repaid God for what God did for them because we have uninformed young people. They don't recognize just how much Christ has done for them. 
and we have allowed them to be an ungrateful generation. And don't think it's just this one. I've had several of my peers growing up that I hung out with as a 10, 12, 14, 16 year old who are not serving the Lord at all. Who have not endured. And I know that they know the truth. We all have that. But I look into their lives and I see the misery it has brought them because they didn't endure. And Peter says, I don't want that for any of you. I want you to endure, so you need to be reminded of what you've been saved from. This is what you used to be. This is what characterized your life. And if you want to be reminded, look around in the world and see the misery that is their existence. Because that is what Christ has saved you from. Not just your future penalty of punishment of eternal lake of fire, but just from the miserable existence of being here on this earth and not even knowing why you are here. And we know perfectly well why we are here because we just read that we are here to bring glory to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of our existence. And the world wanders around, blind men, leading other blind men, not knowing the answers to life. And so they stop even asking the question, why am I here? And that is what's characterizing this generation. We've distracted them from even the capacity or the interest in giving any thoughtfulness to asking that fundamental question, why am I here? To even pursue the concept that maybe there's something more important than the rat race. Maybe there's something more important than entertainment. Maybe there's something more important than education. Maybe there's something more important than than material things. Maybe there's something more important than sensuality. Maybe there's something more important than these things. To pursue. And Peter says, you need to, and you can now, Pursue God because of what he has saved you from. But that's not all Peter wants to remind you of. He also wants to remind you of what you've been saved to. You have a future secure. He has saved you that you might serve him certainly and and be enabled to be recreated to bring him glory on a a new level that, that you just did not weren't able to really do until he came into your life and and transformed you that we can now bring him the glory in the pursuit of truth in a relationship with him uh, that is what he has saved us to that we have an, uh, an inheritance we have a relationship with God that is familial it is that intimate and he wants to remind us that this ought to move you to endure for you are Not only God's child by creative act, but you are his child by his loving sacrifice. He has put you into his own family and made you joint heirs with his son Jesus Christ. And therefore, because when we think about all that we are saved to and the inheritance awaits us, and that's why Peter references it here and again throughout these two books to remind you about 
your future. You have a future secure. Endure. Don't become disqualified in the first hundred meters of the race, but neither become disqualified in the last hundred meters of the race. Because either end, you're disqualified. And there is nothing for you. But because we have been saved to something, we have been delivered from and delivered to something, Peter wants to remind us of that heavenly thing that waits for us to encourage us to endure, press on, to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of you. And so he wants you to be, um, and he uses these words, to establish yourself, to, to, to deter, I mean, just all the work that God can, has done on your behalf to then embrace that fully and to recognize that whatever you suffer, to whatever degree, for his name's sake, will simply bring him glory, but it is in a response to saying, I understand my future, and I am not afraid because of Christ. That's what he has saved me to. I am not nervous. I am not discouraged. I am not depressed. I am none of those things because I understand the future I am saved to. Now, my future even on earth, <laughs> okay, will God fail me? No. Why? I'm his child. The jeopardy here isn't that God will fail me. The jeopardy is whether I will fail God. And so Peter recognizes that jeopardy. That jeopardy is real. And so we press on. So we need to be encouraged. So we need to be reminded on a regular basis, do not neglect your salvation. For there is no other salvation out there. You wander off of this path, you have wandered off a path that, that is the only one that goes to life. You have been saved to this. Endure. Be steadfast. And so he reminds them over and over again, you've been saved from this, you've been saved to this. Endure. One of the other mega themes that is not unrelated to endurance, but we have handled as a mega theme, is your relationships. And again, we come to this phrase, to bring God glory. Do my relationships bring God glory? And so Peter has taken his time to develop the relationship within the family. Do the relationships within our family, between parents and their children, between, particularly between husbands and their wives, do they bring God's glory? In other words, when people evaluate how I relate to my spouse, um, do they say, well, you know, am I glorifying God by following his instructions for that relationship? This is part of the endurance. You start breaking lateral relationship with the people and disregarding God's word there, it will affect your, hor your vertical relationship with God. And it will move you away from enduring. You are jeopardizing your relationship with God 
when you fail to follow his instructions on your relationships with one another. And so Peter takes the time. He says, listen, uh, husbands, this is what you need to do in regard to your wife. You need to dwell with them with understanding uh, that your prayers be not hindered. I mean, immediately we are confronted with the fact that how I treat my wife affects how God treats me. Will you hear your prayers? The prayer of the righteous heal. Part of righteousness is your relationship with your wife. Am I being right in that respect? Am I treating her with the understanding, with the love, with the sacrifice that God demands of me? Similarly, the wife. How can you claim to bring glory to God when you won't glory your, bring glory to your husband? You cannot read Proverbs 31 and not conclude that one of the things that should be noteworthy of a real woman of virtue is that her husband is well spoken of in the gates because of the activity of his wife. You see, we have perverted that. We think, well, the wife should get the glory because we are self-oriented. We're not humble. We don't understand authority. That when my authority is glorified, I'm glorified. I get to share in his glory. We don't think of that as a team effort, and we want to make sure that we get the glory, and, and Peter says this is false. This is empty. This is the world. This is Satan's mechanisms, and they will not bring you joy. They will not bring you peace. They will not establish a relationship with your one another, and they won't establish your relationship with God to endure. And so he talks about the familiar relationships, but then he also talks about the relationships between the brethren, that we submit to one another, that this is the, the evidence of our love for one another, that we the relationship between the shepherds and the flock, that we are the under-shepherds, the relationship between pastor and people, and the necessity of that, all to bring glory to God. That the pastor must do his responsibility and carry himself as pastor, bishop, overseer. He uses, this is Timothy, or Peter's the one that uses it, the three terms all together in one passage. That this the purpose of this is not to bring glory to the under-shepherd. Uh, the purpose of this is to bring glory to God. And when that is perverted, we start having problems, which gets to the, one of the other mega-themes. But similarly, if the, if the congregate doesn't want to surrender and submit to biblical instruction by God's agent, that we have rebellion at its root. And this will jeopardize not just that one, but all those influenced by that one who think that somehow they are free and at liberty to join that one in speaking evil of an authority. And so Peter takes a lot of effort, considering the size of these two books, how much effort he puts into your relationships. Your relationship should bring glory to God. 
How, do a, how does a child bring glory to God? Well, in the Ten Commandments, we have a commandment specifically for children. How do you bring glory to God? Honor your father and your mother. That's a relational command that is not vertical, but lateral. It is for, to other humans so that I can have the promises of God be brought to bear upon my being, upon who I am. I need to have right relationships with these in authority over me. And so, yes, your relationships with one another are the mechanism, one of the significant mechanisms by which we bring glory to God. And so we go through the scriptures and we see relationships and we see some broken and the hazards that are there um, that are evidence of spiritual uh, brokenness that's there. But we also see others that we honor and we look at and we go and we marvel at them. And so, and we recognize that this is what makes this individual bring glory to God on another level compared to his peers. And so I study the life of David, and I see his tremendous loyalty to Jonathan. I see his incredible uh, relationship with the prophets, even, even when they rebuke him and, 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 and come to him with, with his own sin. And we see his relationship with, with his generals, and we even see his relationship in transferring the kingdom and saying, listen, I, I couldn't take care of these things, but you need, but if this comes up, you need to take care of it. The humility that is there and the way he honored those people around him and was willing to humble himself before his own people. We say, there's a man. But we see the evidence of his right walk with God in his willingness to Submit, even as king, to those around him. And so our relationships are critical to bring glory to God. And that's what we, we want to evaluate relationships. Well, let me evaluate my relationship through my home. Well, do they bring glory to God? Is God glorified by our speech, by the way we treat one another, by the, by the manner in which we conduct ourselves around the dinner table? Does that bring glory to God? The way we, we spend time throughout the day, the way we share chores, the, the way we do anything and everything, does it bring glory to God? Is it done in a manner with a spirit that God would be pleased with it and that people would see evidence that God has made a difference in our homes? Similarly within our church, does it bring glory to God in our relationships? Submit to one another in love. A simple statement, but this is the means by which your relationships can bring glory to God. There is only one relationship really protected um, and, and set aside distinctly. The world would say, well, that doesn't bring glory to God, but we know better. Uh, we're going to get to that here in a minute. But even our relationship with the world is one that should bring glory to God, that we should present to them the righteousness of Christ in our life in how we live, what we say, our attitudes as we engage them, and, and that they should recognize that God has done something in us. And so our relationship with the world equally, 
if we just have no compassion for their lostness, if we have no interest in communicating to them the gospel, if we have no, uh, we're so self-centered that we can't think that we might uh, need to be a testimony to them in our in being different than them, um, you can't bring glory to God there. Not only in them not coming to Christ, but in them not even recognizing Christ in you. And once they recognize it, that we don't take the credit ourselves, but we have all that glory. Anything that's different about me is because of Jesus. And so they won't hear me complaining. Because we know complaining is ingratitude. It's not the enduring spirit. It's a selfish spirit that brings us to complaining. Rather, we pour our cares upon him because he cares for us. We, we give them to him in our prayers, and we, and we uh, endure, and we consider it joy. And the world needs to see that. That I'm not going to participate with my tongue in these things that they are so common. Not only just not in cursing and, and off-color speech, but even in things like gossip and, and, as I said, complaining in these other areas that the world should not hear that. Our speech is part of your is a significant part of your relationship with people, isn't it? Not just verbal speech, but nonverbal speech. And that's why I talk about you hear me pray about our or speak about our countenance. Uh, it's a biblical term about your expressions. Do your expressions bring glory to God? Or are they always a scowl? You know, is that all you're known for? You're just a grumpy old person. Or can we have the joy of the Lord on our face even while we are being maltreated? We are called to this, brethren, to have our relationships bring glory to God. Our intimate relationships, our most intimate relationships, all the way out to our Relationships even with the world, knowing that Jesus died for them too. And then there's one relationship that is preserved, is set aside, is distinct, that requires not submission, but isolation. Which brings us to our last mega theme, really, in Peter. And it's not just in a single relationship, it's not just this one group, but really what they represent and that is with the false teacher. Peter was extraordinarily concerned about the effect of false teachers on the church. And of all the people groups described in the scripture, this group is set aside and condemned on a scale that is frightening. The terminology being used, whether it be from our Lord, from Paul, from James, from Peter, from John, is extraordinary in its severity of how they speak of them. They give them really no hope and no expectation but judgment. And they call upon us to recognize them and to isolate them um, 
and we are not talking about engaging the world. I'm not talking about going to the unbeliever, and, and I anticipate that they are full of error and because they do not know the truth. They are walking in darkness. We are talking about within the context of the church, within the, the, the Christianity of those who claim to be children of the light, but are also really advocating for error and darkness. And this is very distinct from those who are captured by them, although there's some troubling things said about them as well. And so we come to this and we see these false teachers and we are told to very quickly identify them. But in our non-confrontational society, we look down on that kind of thing. Oh, you named names, you, you pointed fingers at people, and yet we fail to realize that's exactly what a shepherd is supposed to do. That is a wolf. I will deal with him. You guys just keep munching. Is a wolf a danger to the flock? Yes. Whose responsibility fundamentally is it to initiate and protect? And that is the shepherd. And David, again, it gives us a great example of that. And, and says, ultimately, the Lord is our shepherd. We are, our dependence is upon him. But as under-shepherds, even though I don't own the flock, the father owns the flock, I'm just the son, uh, I, I have responsibility to protect it. And David's testimony was, well, I've killed a lion, I've killed a bear. To protect my dad's flock, I can kill this Goliath too to protect God's people. And the understanding of the nature of that responsibility. Well, it's not just the responsibility of the shepherd, because not because I'm also one of the sheep. <laughs> we are fellow ministers one to another. That we have a responsibility if we are carriers of the Holy Spirit within us to be discerning, to compare anything that we hear teach with God's word because this scripture is given by inspiration of God. Paul's not the only one that said that. Peter says it too. That we have these scriptures before us. That we do not pervert them and when we see other people perverting them, when we see other people twisting them, uh, we, we are alerted and we recognize that this is a common encounter of God's people throughout history, not just church history, but even into Old Testament history, that there will be false prophets among the people. And so we are to be attentive. We are not to be asleep or in coasting in, in, in autopilot. But rather, we are called to be engaged and actively in everything we hear and in those that we hear it from to say, is this correct? And when we begin to see a pattern of error in someone's teaching that is non-correctable, that's because they won't allow you to correct it in their lives, that we isolate that individual, that we identify them as someone we aren't going to bend over backwards. We aren't going to try to accommodate. We aren't going to try to, well, let's just see if we can 
find the middle ground here between us. No, there is no such thing in Peter and Paul and John and James' writings. No such thing in Luke and, and Matthew and Mark. No, no such thing. We rather point the finger and say they are whitewashed sepulchers. They look good on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. They're the blind leading the blind. These are the words of our Savior toward these men, these kinds of men. And so we treat them with a different tactic. That tactic is one of identification, isolation, to protect the flock. And so we're going to drive the wolves away. That's the shepherd's job. And to keep the flock intact, not because it's his wealth, but because it belongs to the Father. And we even risk our lives for that. And when we get so culturally sensitized that we can't enable or allow or permit or even acknowledge the value of someone saying, this person is not someone to listen to, this person is teaching error, this person or this group of people or this denomination has some problems, then we are foolish and we will not endure. For we will, as it says, be drawn away or be drug away by these into destructive doctrines. They will exploit us. They will exploit the flock. If you've ever seen a flock under attack, you see what they do. They do not chase around the perimeter. An animal that wants to attack will go right into the center. They'll scatter them, isolate, so they can just be scattered. They'll bring division, and the flock isn't intact anymore, and now they're scattered, and now they can pick off people individual animals. It's very hard for them to attack a flock, and so they just drive themselves into the flock, scatter it apart, and then they start picking people off. This is what wild animals do, and this is how the Bible describes these individuals. And so we have this peril, this danger, this antichrist, that we must recognize that there are many of them, that we must truly identify, isolate, and turn from, that we might not be drug away by their enticements and their error. And it's not just the individuals, it is the content of their teaching. And this is really important in our day and age um, because we are in a day and age unlike any other in the history of the world. That you have access to so many teachers outside of your community that I don't have any capacity to be able to know who they are. For centuries and millennia, the people you knew are the people I knew. The people I knew are the people you knew. Because we grew up in a community together. 
And when someone came in and wanted to teach some destructive doctrine, we could identify them and isolate them as a community. But now you have access to people all over the world on such a scale that is unimaginable. So when the Bible says you'll heap up teachers to tell you what you want to hear has never been comparable to what it is today. And there is no way that I could possibly <laughs> be able to identify every single one of them because I would, it would just use up all of my waking hours and then some to be able to do that. And so we come down to how do I, what do we need to do? Two things. Number one, we need to know the truth better and better. We need to increase our knowledge of the truth of God's word. We need to be solid there. And this is why we are concerned about what we teach in, in pre-primary Sunday school, that it's accurate and correct and biblical. This is why it matters, because we need to know the truth and nothing but the truth sometimes. That to recognize a counterfeit, you don't study every counterfeit, you study the original that is counterfeited. Oh, that we would increase our knowledge. And that's what Peter tells us to do. He reminds us over and over again. Know the truth. Know the truth. Know the truth. So that you are not drug away by their error. And then the second thing we need to do is to identify major areas of significant error. So that we know what makes a cult a cult. And the world doesn't call them cults anymore. Did you notice that? You know who the world calls cults now? You. You know why? Because you're a bunch of unvaxxed people. Because you don't go along with society. That makes you a cult in their mind. But we understand what a cult is. And now they call Mormons Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses Christians and Seventh-day Adventists Christians. They call they say, these are all just Christian denominations. And those groups have really driven to that. But in my lifetime, that has occurred. Because when I was in college, we had cults. And everyone called them cults. But now they're mainstream, and now you're the cult. But we need to be able to identify and say, well, here's the truth we stand on. Absolutely, that needs to be 90%, 95% of what we're doing. But we also need to recognize that there is error in categories of doctrine that we need to be attentive to and say, that is not this. We have to know what this is first, right? But then we have to take the time sometimes to say that is not this. And the reason we have to do that is because of what Peter says, that these people are master twisters of words, aren't they? They twisted the teachings, the writings of Paul to say what they wanted to say. They are masters of that. And that's why it's important that we take time and say, listen, when they say that, they don't mean this. I know they're using some of the same words. But if you read their definitions of those words, they don't mean the same thing as what God's word means by those words. 
And so we are warned not only against the false teacher, but the false teaching. And in this day and age, we can see it uh, at a scale that would just dumbfound the authors of Scripture on the scale of how much false teaching there is prevalent, how accessible it is to anyone who wants to find anything that, they, that teaches what they agree and it makes them feel good and affirms their error. And we want to be able to say, here's the truth, and that that was just taught is not this. And we need to have that level of discernment to be able to recognize error from truth. And that is, involves some critical thinking skills, things like that, that we need to sharpen and the only way to sharpen it that I know of is practice. And so together we need to take that practice every now and then. Can I identify error when I hear it? Can I recognize it? And so we have taken a tactic in our church not only to preach what we believe, but to s- distinguish it from what others teach. Here's what the scriptures teach, here's what others say about it. And you'll hear the adult Sunday school teachers say it. You'll hear me use that. Um, and, and maybe, I don't know, I don't into our children's Sunday schools too much. Um, but certainly in the older ages, to be able to recognize this is uh, distinct. All of this is so that we can bring glory to God. Because error and false teachers want to rob God of his glory. They want to detract from what he has done for us. They want to cause you to think less of God and more of them or more of yourself. They will always detract and draw away from God's glory um, even while they're using his name to do so. And so when I hear something and it's going and I start working through this and, and I'm like, wait a minute. The conclusion of this is that you're saying God is this. When the Bible says pointedly that he isn't that. They don't come out and say that. They say something else that leads to that. And we need to be able to identify that very quickly early on. Before they get a foothold in our loyalties, in our feelings, in our minds, we need to be able to identify that error very quickly. So these are the major themes of Peter. Ultimately, that you might endure, that your relationships might glorify God, that that you might be able to recognize truth from error and isolate those who are propagating error. But fundamentally, all of that is tied up in this one sentence. To bring glory to our Lord and Savior now, and forever. And it'll be a lot easier in forever. Because we'll be in his presence. So the hard work, folks, is just now. So let's keep on. Endure. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for your work in Peter's life and the words he has penned here by your inspiration for our benefit. And Lord, we pray that you might work in our lives and continue that work that you've begun, that we might be steadfast and immovable, always abounding 
in what you have called us to be and do and as to bring you glory. Lord, we marvel at what you've done for us as our creator. We marvel even more for what you've done for us as our savior. We look forward so much to being in your presence and singing your praises with that new song in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb. Lord, as we look forward to that, we are reminded that you have work for us to do here and now. And Lord, we want to do that in our homes, in our church, in our place in society at large, that we might bring you glory, even in this dark world, that we might be a light, reflecting the light of Christ in us. To your glory, honor, and praise. Amen.